Welcome to the Just What I Needed to Hear podcast with Yoga Farm Ithaca, where we teach you how to live the principles of yoga both on your mat and off the mat in the living curriculum of your precious life. Welcome. This is Death Talks number five. I'm Daniela. I'm one of the co-founders of Yoga Farm Ithaca and an educator. We're a nonprofit organization situated in upstate New York. And um, as always, I'm so grateful that we can be here together like this. So um, some of you may have participated in some of the previous Death Talk conversations. If not, those recordings are available on the Yoga Farm podcast, as well as in the private Facebook group Death Talk. So please feel free to explore the four previous conversations. And here we are tonight in our fifth session. This session is really um, geared for, for parents or for anyone that interacts with children, right? Especially in a familial sense um, or caregiving sense or in a guiding sense. Um, I had a wonderful godmother and she was, she was really one of my, um, my very first, oh, it's funny. I hadn't thought about it this way. I always said, oh, Mr. Rogers is one of my first spiritual teachers, but really was my godmother, Ingrid. And she, she really helped shape um, so much of what I've come to understand through direct experience, right? She shared beliefs as adults. We share our perceptions and our beliefs with, with children. And as, as they grow older, if they have the great good fortune to be guided to question their beliefs, right? To see if their direct experience matches they're what they have been told by the adults in their life, then, then you keep a belief. <laughs> and if not, then you, then you discard it and you move on. And so um, I'm happy. I'm happy to be here tonight. And I'm happy that my, our, our, that godmother Ingrid is evidently here with us as well. <laughs> so tonight we talk a little bit about some of the best practices for discussing death, death education with youth. Um, I, as I was writing this up, we just one, two, three, four, five pages poured out. So if we find this is, um, we're a little, it's too feeling too compact, then we'll just turn this into a two part, a two part series. Okay. Cause there's, there, there's a lot of good stuff here and I want to make sure that, that there's an opportunity for us to, um, to dialogue. All right. I have been a death educator and a guide and counselor around death and death education, grief, loss, and bereavement for many years. And it's truly my great joy to talk about death and to, to teach death education. I have found in our culture, we are a very, we are, many of us are ill-prepared to have conversations around death, loss, dying, grief, and change. So these conversations, and for many of you that have participated in our In Yoga Farm curriculum previously, it's woven in there. And so many of you, you have, may have been finding yourselves in a closer relationship with the topic. Right? There are traditions um, in many parts of the world where it is a daily practice to contemplate 
one's existence, to contemplate the truthfulness that we all will have a final exhale and we don't know when, and so will everyone else. Death meditation, death contemplation is, um, is one of the, is a gift you can give yourself. And if it brings up a lot of emotion or um, tension or air sensations, I, I, I implore you to stay with them, to befriend them, to be gentle with them, to welcome them as an aspect of yourself that has not been attended to, right? I think of it as an aspect of yourself that is coming up into the sunlight after a very long time. And that light can be very, very bright and uncomfortable. Um, we live great lives. We live the greatest lives when we integrate that as part of a regular awareness and contemplation. The more we make that a part of our own existence, the more equipped we are to have conversations, truthful conversations, where we're present with children about death and change, loss. All right, so children in our culture are very sheltered from aging, not all, many, from aging, from sickness. Um, and we have a habit and tendency in our culture around many, many topics to want to keep things the same and we have a re resistance to change. So, Many children are ill-prepared to navigate change in their lives. So the best way that we can prepare children is first through how you're living, how you're speaking, and for your aliveness in your own life and your reverence. For life and for all of life, for all of life's forms, to the very best of our ability. It doesn't mean we have to hit it as an A plus. I sometimes struggle with ticks, right? I'm I'm still looking to find deep, deep reverence for ticks because in my mind I haven't reconciled well. It's not like there's a, a lack of them, and yes. Guinea hens and birds do eat them, but they don't, there doesn't seem to be a shortage and they seem to cause a lot of havoc. So I'm, I'm working on ticks. Okay. So <laughs> I found one was walking on me today and I looked at Christopher and I was like, oh, and I, then I felt sad. I'm like, oh, what do I do with it? I don't have a bird around to eat it. Do I, do I smush it? He's like, it's, it's okay to smush it. And then I dropped it and lost it and I felt relieved. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, so I'm, I'm still, you know, we, we don't, don't go for an A plus just you go scene by scene and you notice where, where your work is ticks are where my work is. So
Okay. I see how this is going to go. That's, that's Krishna. <laughs> he's, he likes to eat ticks. So he has no problem with them. <laughs> I was one vote for team tick on, on Krishna's side. I, I got it. See, I got it. I stand corrected. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, you know, as adults, it, it's, it's a really beautiful uh, contemplation, contemplative meditation, journaling exercise to start to put on paper, to put our mind on paper and start to take a gentle inventory about what is some of the programming that we ourselves have received, the programming and messaging about death, about loss and change. What are some of the phrases we were learned, uh, we were raised, and and were, were were taught or were spoken around us? Right? What did some of the adults in our lives? And I see how the adults in our lives spoke to us and raised us as absolutely everyone doing the very best that they knew how in the moment. Okay, so sometimes some of us may have heard some some really creative things or some wacky things or some really skillful things, right? The whole spectrum. It's, it can be a really tender, beautiful exercise to look at what has helped shape some of my current views around uh, death. Because when we start to, when we put, and I, I'm a, you know me, I'm a fan, put it on paper. Just put it on paper. When we start to put that on paper, then we can step back. Our mind is right there on paper. It's not recycling around trying to get our attention. It's all right there. Now we can start to sit with our mind on paper and look at, is, do I believe this? Do I believe it? Because it's, it, it's a sense, it's a sense of, um, it's an intuitive sense and, some, and, and it, something feels right, right? Our, we, our bodies are tuning forks, resonating with truthfulness. So sometimes something just feels right. So keep that, keep it. Some beliefs that you notice you have on paper that were given to you, handed down, may not reflect your direct experience. So you can put a question by them. This is what I've been taught and I don't know. As parents and for ourselves, it's okay to not know. It's a wonderful place to be in. And I don't know. Because when we don't know something, and yet we have a yearning to, to experience, to have direct experiences so that we can seek deeper understanding for ourselves, we can hold those questions close to us. Show me. I wish to understand more about this. Guide me. Bring a resource to me that may speak to me. Bring a conversation into my world. Like, what is it you want to understand, know, feel, or have direct experiences around these topics? And remember, it is okay to not know. Better to say to a child, if they ask a question, I don't know. What a wonderful question. I don't really know. Let's hold that question close to us and allow insight to come to us or we can look up a resource, or we can go online, see what other cultures have believed, what other mythologies, what stories, right? So allow questions to be grand and be okay with not knowing when children ask 
questions. And first and foremost, when you're asking yourself questions around death and dying, it is so beautiful to be in the I don't know mind because that's a humble mind. Points for humble mind. (laughs) From the mouth of Krishna. All right. So we want to start with our own mind. What are some of the beliefs we've been handed down? What is there for us to question? What is there for us to explore, dive into more? What do we seek more deeper understanding around? And when, when if you ask others, a beautiful question when they share their beliefs is not as a challenge and really coming from the heart. Can you tell me a little bit about how that is your direct experience? Because many people will share, this is X is Y, this is that. And oftentimes we share, people share their perspective, their views with great passion and authority. And for me, I really like to know, is that also what you say you believe? Is that your personal direct experience? And would you be willing to share a little bit more about how that belief has really become embodied for you? so that you have a deep faith in your belief. To me, I find that invaluable. And not to cha- not as a challenge to someone, right? Because, um, well, just because. So this is our starting point. When we, when we skip this step of taking a personal inventory of our own mind around the, these topics, we will then unconsciously pass on to children that which we have been, what has been poured into us, we will pour into them, right? So this is where we want to really land in a clean, a clean ground of truthfulness because we cannot instill in children what A, isn't our own direct experience, so we're not able to speak from direct experience or from a place of conviction, but there's, it's not authentic. There's an authenticity to sharing from where does your direct experience. I can share with my family members, and as I did in the last death talk about synchronicities and connecting with the unseen with those in the unseen realm here in the material plane, how the unseen realm, how those who have crossed over um, have directly revealed themselves in my life irrefutably. So I can share those stories, those direct experiences with my children, with you, with others. Um, And I need nobody's uh, seal of approval or validation. Okay, but those come from direct experience. So we want to be able to share from that place with children. So one of the most important ways that we can honor good living, a good living brings good death. Full, a full, the rapture of feeling alive 
is what we are here to experience. We are here to experience the full rapture of our own unique aliveness in this lifetime. A good life yields a good death. One of the keys to living a good life, as many of you know, as connecting to your own essential nature, the aspect of yourself that is permanent and unchanging, is time in nature. Nature teaches every universal truth there is. So one of the most important ways that we can teach death education to children is through nature, through being in nature. Nature, every element in nature invites you, envelops you and draws you inward. Ever sat by a fire and been able to sit by a fire for hours and it just draws you in. Ever sit by a big body of water and you can just be, it draws you in. It draws you into a natural contemplation or a natural meditation. Everybody knows how to contemplate and meditate if they go out in nature. It, it draws you into that place without having to call it or being formal about your practice. Uh, ever just sit on the ground and just or garden, or feel the earth in your fingers, right? Or weeding, you can get just called in. Um, I know, I'm, oh, the sky at night. Many children, many of us had more experiences in nature it, before the, um, before 2007 is essentially when technology really hit a new, a new peak, right? With cell phones, smartphones. I think the first smartphone was 2007, 2008. And then by about 2010 was when there was a tipping point of X number of the population had smartphones. There's data that shows how rates of anxiousness, depression, um, loneliness, disconnection from nature, all started to increase as people spent more and more time engaged in technology, right? Many of us probably grew up at some point either camping or, or having some opportunities to be in the vastness of the night sky. How profound is that to see the stars? It is so profound. So these experiences for children, walks in, walks in nature, being lakeside, oceanside. Um, and, and if you, you know, it, it might take effort, right? You, and, and being with the nature in any environment, right? You, you live in the city, Central Park is gorgeous. It doesn't mean you have to take an epic trip to be in nature. Find the nature that's near you. And bringing children into nature is an essential aspect of their well-being because nature shows us so many facets of change and death. Among many other things it shows us. 
it shows us brilliance. It shows us a miraculousness. It shows us a, a most efficient des- giving design. It's, it's extraordinary. And it shows us change, like the seasons, of course. That's an obvious one. So these are essential life skills and life truths that when we're with children in nature, we're speaking, right? Because go back to the, the, the essential keys of, of teaching children about death education is your own awareness, your speaking, and your reverence and humility for life. So there you are out in nature, speaking to, pointing out about changes. Um, you will see um, decomposing bodies. You'll see decomposing animals in nature when you're out on a hike um, or when you're driving. I always kept, I I mean, I still do, in my car, because I have two boys. So how I'm speaking is, is what I shared with them as they were growing up. I always had extra blankets, water, uh, thick gloves, right? If I ever found an owl injured or anything, I always want to be able to, to, to care for an animal to the best of my ability. If, if I saw an injured animal Um, and whenever we're driving, if there's, if there's an animal that's been injured or killed, mainly killed, actually, we would, we would pull over safely and my child, uh, we would, we would move the body off the road. So those are opportunities to speak to reverence for its body that no longer, ah, it's, it's, see, it's no longer breathing. Its heart is no longer beating. Its essence no longer abides in this body. This body is like the, is like a shell, right? Like a, um, um, the ocean life is such a great example for very young children, right? When, a, when you see a seashell that used to have a creature in it, the essence of that hermit crab is no longer there. The, sh- the body is the shell. So I'd say, oh, look at its eyes. You see the light of the heart, which is where we abide, shines out the eyes. You see the light is not in its eyes. So this animal is no longer here. His essence is no longer here. So let's move it out of the road onto the side where it can decompose, where it can return to the earth and where the crows now that are going to be nourished by this body can eat safely. That was always the lesson when we moved animals. That covers so much territory right there, okay? So these these conversations are to continue to point out, to continue to repeat. When we would be on a hike, if we saw um, an animal that was was in a later stage of decomposition, uh, we always would go over and with reverence, look and explore, and you see all the 
all the life, all the flies, all the, the maggots, giving them like real life terms, not like ooey gooeys or iggly, iggly, icky, icky wigglies, right? Or like, you, well, this is where you want to watch your language, right? Because you may hear your old programming of like, ew, that's gross. Or, or um, you know, oh, that smells disgusting, right? Like you watch your commentary around death because you're programming more in that quick statement than the intention of the teachable moment. So you want to really connect with there. It's, it's not disgusting. Stay factual. The what is, is this is a brilliant design right now. This process of decomposition is really miraculous ecosystem upon ecosystem upon ecosystem is breaking this down and being nourished to create new earth for there to be new growth for the plants, which do what? Create oxygen for us to breathe, right? Like there's the, the magnificence and the miraculousness of that. So, so in these conversations about death, you're weaving in the truthfulness of the miraculousness also of life with awe and reverence. The Dalai Lama answered a parent one time when, when they said, what is, what is the best way to teach compassion to my children? And he said, teach them to be kind to insects. How many times I was raised with a family, all innocent, there was a fly swatter on the porch, <laughs> right? Fly would come around, whap! <laughs> so, and I, I observed that and it didn't, wasn't, I just didn't, didn't feel right and I was an observant child. I wasn't a, I wasn't a challenging type. I just took note and I noticed how my body felt and I noticed, ah, kind of red, like flag that for future, right? Because I don't think it's not my practice. Um, Yoli, I don't know that poem. I'd love to, I'd love for you to share it in the chat if you can, or somewhere for us. Yoli's saying, do we know the poem hurt no living thing? Um, so teaching children to the best of your ability, right? And everyone has their, um, their threshold for this practice, okay? On occasion, the Dalai Lama also said, you know, I usually try to swish mosquitoes away, and now and then I have been known to smush one, okay? So even His Holiness himself has smushed mosquitoes. So you find how, how generous can you teach your children, and you make the call personally, you know, if there's a... Um, if there's a venomous or a, 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 an insect in your home that could do that could truly harm someone, you you trust your own instinct, and um, and if you do take the life of an animal or of an insect, you explain to your child why. Otherwise, can you do the old? Every every room in my house has two things: cup and solid cardstock. That goes over the spider, this gently goes under, and we've done a relocation program, okay? Because that is us all living in mutual harmony, 
as Jeannie's garden is called mutual victory, there's a mutual victory. So those are the conversations I'm having with my children. When um, and when I was a, a, a educator in in the school system, this was you know a lesson paused when a big ant was walking by, right? Everyone, all everyone stopped, and we would now relocate the ant so it could live its precious life. That's the language. So again, we want to look at what's the programming we have. Would I be, could I be willing to question how is it necessary that I kill this? Could I, could I move it? Could I move it outside? Um, so that is one of the great, great gifts we can give our children because from a very early age, and if this is a new practice, you can always adopt it starting, start wherever you are. It doesn't matter how old your children are. If they're, if they're teenagers and they saw the fly swatter for every day of their life until today, there's, there may be a new practice, right? Say, oh, you know, I'm trying, I'm, I'm exploring a different way of living. This is new for me, Bob, so bear with me, <laughs> right? We just start where we are. Um. There's a, there's a beautiful experience children can have around reverence among um, the small creatures, the ant world. Um, lovely for around the third grade child is getting an ant farm because ants have a unique practice of they create a place where they bring the deceased they treat the deceased, uh, the ants of their colony, with great reverence. Now, I don't know that an ant is, in, is thinking and feeling reverence. However, what I do know is that it shows children the very act of the effort it takes for these ants to carve out these magnificent tunnels and then to bring the deceased together in one place. I watched an ant today, actually, when I was taking notes, carry, I know where their ant hill is uh, in, in my yard. And he had, it was like he had, he was trekking across, across half the globe, carrying one of, one of, his, one of his, his family members, right? He was up every blade and down, every blade and down. And I, I, I asked, do I do a relocation and make this easier? And I just, I heard, just get out of his way. Just let him, let him do him. And um, so that's, it's, it's really quite beautiful. I always had that in, in my classroom. Also really a great practice for children is if you get a small fish tank and you seal the lid really well with a, quite a few layers of saran wrap and then some rubber bands, tape, and you put in it, um, uh, a, uh, like a pumpkin that's been, you know, if you carve it out, scoop it out, get the seeds, do something fun with it. You don't have to wait till October to do this. And it's called the decomposition tank. And you let the decomposition process just do its thing. And they can, you, your, your children can draw, I would always have my students draw a picture every day of what they observed using colored pencils, you know, they, 
um, would see the changes, the decomposition. And then the beautiful part was because there were a few seeds left stuck inside that day that new life sprouts up from it is really quite remarkable for children. So the decomposition tank is a, oops, hang on, Daniel's jumping in here. That's a wonderful um, uh, tool for younger children. Um, okay, so we've covered what do I believe? We've covered being truthful. I don't know. Our language is key, right? Just watching any language around, around death of animals, around death and loss of, of people in your lives. Watch the language of, oh, that's gross when you see a dead animal. Um, watch the language of, oh, that's horrible if someone has died, right? Bringing it, staying a little more grounded and a little closer to a little closer to that, to the heart space. The heart doesn't, that's not the language of the heart. The language of the heart speaks differently. The language of the heart would say, oh, oh, Uncle Bob, I so cherished those times with Uncle Bob. These were the facets of being about Uncle Bob that I so cherished. Gosh, am I going to miss being in the, in the physical plane with him? I'm going to come back to, to this, but I just wanted to say watching our language is, is key. Also, not putting too many human, human qualities. Like if, a, if, a, if you see a baby bird that falls out of a nest and is no longer living and you're with your children, not like, oh, that's so tragic. That's so horrible. That mother must be so sad right? That's not, we're, 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 we're adding more into what is. Stay factual. Stay factual and stay reverent. Oh, what a beautiful, look how, look at its features. Look how miraculous his beak is. Where do you think we can put its body so that we can honor it? Right? That's plenty so that we can honor it. Oh, we could put it in the garden. Wonderful, right? So, so there are ways. Um, again, some of the ways that we speak to our children to prepare for death is honoring the preciousness of our life and their lives. So when we greet our children in the morning, is there a way that we can bring into our authentic language of, oh, welcome to your, welcome to this, to your one, to this precious day. Welcome to this precious day, Bob. Right? So I'm so happy to see your eyes. That language speaks to the miraculousness and the, and the, and the gratefulness for our aliveness. Um, also very important when we're spending time with them in nature, these are golden opportunities, golden nugget moments to answer questions. Oftentimes children will come to that place of, does everything die? Does everything change, right? And it's important that they hear straightforward language from us when they're very starting very young, that, that everything that is alive has a final exhale 
and we don't know when. And it's very important to bring this into your own personal practice so you can be so authentic and present with your children with these conversations, with this truthfulness. Otherwise, there will be an, ang- an anxiousness, a, um, a, a fear uh, underlying it. This is one of the most important and potent contemplations we can bring into our own lives. It's a, it's a, there's a deep humility and a tremendous transformation of the way we treat ourselves and everyone else in our lives when we live as the embodied awareness that I will have a final exhale someday and I don't know when and so will everyone in my life. How we treat ourselves and others as we embody this as a living expression of this awareness is a radical shift. And it's very important that we integrate that into ourselves so that we can have those, we can say that to our children. You cannot teach about death in one or two chats. Death is a conversation to have very present on on the day to day by acknowledging changes, pointing out change in life is essential because that's what death is. It is a change of form. It is a change of form. It's not an end. It's a change of the form we're used to. And it's a doorway to a new relationship with a new form. This is key. Expressing gratitude. uh, One of my, my, my practices for myself is before we, when I leave my home, I just give a quick silent appreciation or I'll say to my son, you know, if he's in the car with me, thank you house. Thank you for another night, another night of shelter, another day of another morning of, of goodness. And we're going, I'm driving him to school, presumably in this scene. And may you, may, may I see you again? Taught, taught my children from an early age, it's not promised that my home will, our home will be here. It likely will be, and it's not promised. So to set the stage, it doesn't mean that if it were, if it were, uh, if it had burnt down while we were away, we wouldn't be in deep shock, right? These awarenesses don't prevent us from experiencing shock or sadness or grief. It doesn't, it's not a, it's not a prevention of any of that, but it has us aware that this is part of life. You don't get stuck in the why me? It's why not? Of course it could be. It is to others. It happens to others. It can happen to anyone. So it, it removes the firm, solid expectation that everything as we see it and, exp- and relate to it will always be permanently that way. It's, it, it, it brings us into reality. We want to be in reality with these awarenesses. Um, uh, lastly, another practice that 
is has is been essential is as I we we I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation. It's in one another's eyes. It's right in the eyes where what we are is revealed. Where what we are. That light in the eyes is the light of the heart, which is which is the seat of our self. Big S, the aspect of you that is permanent and unchanging that will take on many, many forms. And so we want our children to know our eyes, to know our gaze, to really see our eyes. So when my children would get out of the car, I would say, oh, 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 eyes. And before I'd go to bed, always a moment of eye contact. Like if my, my son is, he's, he goes to bed later than me. He's 15 now. He's almost 16. And I say, okay, I'm going to bed without missing a beat. He takes his headphones off. He says, let me give you a hug. And then we just have a moment. And that's it. So this practice leads into the next practice, which is when, you ha- when your children are very connected to your eyes, being in the eyes has a timeless quality to it. You ever notice that? There's a timeless quality when you're just really, when you're relaxed and in someone's eyes, just being with them. And when you're really being with someone's eyes, the form sort of disappears. The details beyond the eyes, because the eyes are so potent that all else sort of dissolves for a moment. It's through this practice is a doorway of creating with your children, creating with children that are near and dear to you, the practice of meeting your your inner heaven and your inner heaven together. So when my son was probably about six, we would play the game and make this a game, friends. Make it a fun game. We would play the game of um, where is, first I would say to him, where is your, where, where is it that you and I spend time together that is really one of your most favorite special places? Where are we? What is it we're doing and where are we? And at the time we lived, uh, Creekside, and there was a waterfall and a beautiful swimming hole in our yard. This was in Brookdendale. And we had a beautiful fire pit. It was probably not that beautiful, it was just some rocks, but it was just, it was our heaven. <laughs> and he just said, without missing a beat, he said, Oh, it's by the fire with you and Abby. Abby uh, was often lived with us. And um, there were many eye moments, you know, at fireside. And So we would play the game of describe, I would say, okay, turn inward, describe all the details of the, of the, of the campfire. 
And so he would, gen, you know, describe all the details of it. And I'm like, tell me what it feels like. Is it night? Is it day? What's the temperature? Using all your senses, right? I'm not saying using all your senses. Describe to me. I'm just, you know, he's doing that. I'm drawing it out of him. And I'm helping him to generate crystal clear this place of heaven in his mind's, in his mind's eye. We want to instill and cultivate, help our children cultivate their natural powers, their natural creative intelligence of their mind, the creative imagining of their mind. So then the game was, when you're at school, I want you to generate that scene, me, you, and Abby, and ask me a question. Ask me any question you want. And, and I will answer. And it did. So that became, he became, I trained him to access our connection because he could see my eyes were, you know, some in the eyes. He was anchored in his ability to see me and connect with me when I was not there with him. So now his scene is no longer that campsite because newer scenes have evolved. So I keep checking in with him. Where is it? These days, our secret heaven evidently is in the car together. That tends to be the place where he pours out all the things, right? Like it doesn't happen if we're standing here in the kitchen for some reason. It seems to just happen in the car. And usually when we pull up to the house, that's when whatever is there comes out. So it's our secret heaven is in the car. So um, that's where that's where he knows to turn inward and to connect. And never once has he questioned or said anything like, is it real? Is, am I just making it up? Is it make-believe? Because he feels it. He feels it. So these practices of generating the heaven within with your beloveds so that they can connect internally with you, there will very likely be a day, whether we're on the pl- you're on the planet with your children in two different places and they can't access you, they are they can turn inward. Because if life goes the way it oftentimes does, where our children live in the material plane longer than we are here, it is an, it is a, an essential life skill that they have the ability, they're already connected to us internally. And that will remain when we are no longer here with them in the material plane. That connection has already been established and it will expand and expand and expand. 